Welcome to the Colts' King Podcast. I'm the Duke here with my co-host, Rambling Bones. Hello again. Today, we will be doing the 1980 Roger Corman movie, Battle Beyond the Stars. But first, what do we do on here, Bones? We talk about cult movies. If you don't really know what that is, a cult movie is one of those movies that, for one reason or another, isn't terribly mainstream or mainstream at all. Um, but they have a following, a, a cult following, as you might have guessed. And we try to spread those cults and, and spread the joy of these movies. And if you want to grow our cult, click the like button and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you show a little more enthusiasm, Bones. Well, before uh, I go into the synopsis, I know that you've seen this. Uh, is this your second time seeing this? Yes, my second time seeing this. Um, would you just give us, what are your initial thoughts here? Um, <laughs> admittedly, it was not as good as it was the first time through, um, but I think I was watching it uh, with a slightly more critical eye. Um, oh, I'm going to be honest, I think I liked it a little more this time, but I think I was, uh, I'll get in more in my mindset on this later, but yeah, actually, it, my opinion improved. It's not that I didn't like it, it's just... I didn't like it as much as I liked it the first time. Well, here's the synopsis here. Our main character is Shad, and he lives on this largely agricultural planet called uh, Akir. And everything's going normal when suddenly Sador appears. Uh, Sador is like this intergalactic uh, warlord who has this huge ship that has this super weapon on it called the Stellar Converter. Uh, and he basically tells uh, everybody on Akir that they can either accept him as their new ruler or he can blow their planet up. The Akir are these hippy-dippy, you know, peace-loving type people, and none of them except for maybe one uh, know anything about fighting at all. So Shad goes out to recruit mercenaries to help take on Sador. And I think that's a good synopsis. It's, it's just the Magnificent Seven and Star Wars. Right, or for those of you who uh, are, you know, like the deep cuts, uh, if you've ever seen Seven Samurai, that's kind of what started this whole train of movies. Yeah, Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, A Bug's Life, The Three Amigos, the, the it's all similar plot, bandits or bad guys terrorizing people, people go out and get help. In fact, Seven Samurai was directed by Akira Kurosawa, which is why they are the a cure on this planet subtle not really but <laughs> <laughs> I, that being said uh well i think since most people especially in america in 1980 are probably more aware of the magnificent seven than they are of seven samurai it might have been more it, subtle. then it probably would have right. been subtle well and i bring up seven samurai now just because you know one that's the originator but also nowadays now that it's more common and easier to watch foreign films uh, a lot of people have uh visited seven samurai we're trying to show that we aren't rubes and we know the deep cuts <laughs> right well let's talk about deep cuts uh we'll get more into cast and crew later but one thing i thought was interesting is they actually uh one of the mercenaries they recruit is one of the mercenaries recruited in the magnificent seven yeah so that was an inspired casting choice, I thought. But uh, yeah, it's that same. And it sounds like when Roger Corman was pitching this, he was very like open about we are mashing up this 
but with Star Wars. Because the whole idea was, I mean, Roger Corman made movies to make money, right? Yeah. Uh, often on shoestring budgets. Uh, in fact, this had a budget of $2 million, which, though not great compared to a lot of blockbusters even for the time, uh, was the biggest I think Roger had ever had up to this point. Yeah, it's the strange thing about this movie is if you're aware of Roger Corman's work and you watch this, this has a lot of effort that you aren't used to seeing in a normal Roger Corman movie. I, I At the very start of his career, he put out a bunch of crap, like Attack of the Crab Monsters and things of that nature, which are, are fun, but they're, they're low budget as low budget can be. But when he started doing the Edgar Allan Poe movies with Vincent Price the the quality and filmmaking ability goes up but after that i mean after that it could go from movie to movie it could be absolute garbage it could be like absolute like toxic diarrhea like <laughs> junk or sometimes he would make something that was surprisingly good and this is an example in my opinion of a movie that is way better than it had any right to be because this movie was made to cash in on Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of movies made in the late 70s and 80s meant to cash in on Star Wars. Some of them are borderline unwatchable. That hasn't stopped me from watching a good chunk of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one, I think, is actually pretty good. It's a little bit higher caliber than some of the Star Wars ripoffs you will see. And a little more higher caliber than a lot of Roger Corman movies. It's, it's definitely... Better than Turkish Star Wars. <laughs> well, uh, where would you like to start? Uh, there's all kinds of places that we could start here. I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of the special effects. Yeah, that's probably a good place to start. So, the version of this movie I watched was, uh, I have the Blu-ray, the Shout Factory Blu-ray, which was interesting because it came with some special features. One was an interview with uh, Shad himself. Uh, and the other was with people who actually worked on the special effects. What's interesting um, is they were talking about, despite the fact that they were, you know, this movie was made to be a space opera because we're cashing in on Star Wars, uh, that they made, like, the intentional choice to try to get as far away from Star Wars and their design as possible. That each of the mercenaries' ships were supposed to look like they had been developed by a different culture on a different planet. And... I think for the most part they accomplished that. The the only place where it feels like they didn't do that is the opening scene of the movie really screams of a new hope. Right. But if instead of you have the uh, Star Destroyer chasing Leia's ship, what if we just smashed Leia's ship and the Star Destroyer together and had them come towards a planet? Yes, Sador's ship. It does evoke some of, like, the Empire from Star Wars, especially with, you know, the whole stellar converter being, you know, eerily similar to the Death Star. But uh, every other ship, I think, looks very different. Some real creative designs. One of the mercenaries, like, Gelt, has, like, this very, like, sleek, kind of, like, wide-looking ship, whereas uh, there's a lizard man named Cayman, and his ship kind of has, like, a... It looks like a, a largemouth bass. It kind of does. It's kind of cool. Uh, there's like a this tiny quick ship that uh, one of, like this Valkyrie type character has. The strangest ship is the one we see the most. Um, Shad's ship is like supposed to be like an old fighting ship, an old Corsair, and not only does it have like a female like personality 
things in, but the ship itself looks like a slug with uh, jugs. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. Once you once you see it, it's you just don't unsee. Yeah, it. I don't know why they chose to do that. It's definitely unique. And then of course they have like this UFO design for uh, one of the group is uh, called Nestor, and it's a hive mind of individuals. And, like, four of them are operating the ship, and the fifth is a spare, and they have kind of, like, very saucer shape, you know? It's probably the most foreign of all, because all the ships look like ships, while this looks like a translucent UFO. Like, it it looks like it's made out of glowing metal as opposed to a ship with a glow around it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um and it's it's much different compared to everybody else's. You know what we ought to do real quick before we even get into cast and crew or more on the special effects? We should probably run down each of the mercenaries. Yeah? What do you think? That's fine. Okay, so of the mercenaries hired, the uh, first one we run into is Cowboy. And he's actually from Earth. He is a, a space trucker with the stars and bars on the back of his ship. <laughs> <laughs> and a... Uh, belt that dispenses alcohol he likes cowboy movies and well with most of the people in this movie they all just sort of fall into shad's lap you're right uh, he's like the first one he runs into because his load is being picked off by is it satyr ships or just somebody just, else just pirates just pirates yeah he's shipping guns which of course shad needs right and uh Unfortunately, whoever he was going to sell them to uh, just got blown up by Sador, so he conveniently has a nice load of guns for them. Um, we have uh, Gelt. He is basically like this mercenary who basically was too successful and now basically has nowhere to spend all his wealth because he's wanted everywhere. Where where you run into him, Matt, is there's this sort of casino bar place where mercenaries used to hang out at, but... All of the planets around sort of unionized and proceeded to remove all of the mercenaries from the area. So he, he's sort of the uh, the last one standing in this really cool, like, abandoned bar thing. Yeah, it's, like, underground because the whole planet is, like, covered in, like, basically these storms. And it's interesting because you can see, like, all of this stuff that people would use. Like, there's a dial a drug and there's, like, some sort of, like, you know, pin-up, pick-out, like... Fembot prostitutes. Right, but all of this stuff is in, like, disrepair and, like, covered in webs and stuff because the only one left is Gelt, who can't even spend his money. And Gelt is uh, played by the actor who was in The Magnificent Seven, and he's pretty much sort of doing the same character. But honestly, I think that that was the best way to handle it, especially since we're being so open of what we're doing here. You know what I mean? Um, there's Cayman. He is the last of basically uh, these, like, reptile men that Seder mostly wiped out. And in his little crew, he has, like, two little uh, people who are called Kelvins, they're like twins. They're like twins, and they communicate entirely through differences in temperature. And some just like barbarian dude who never says anything. The the barbarian dude, he's super buff. He's got a spear. Says nothing. He's barely in the movie he apart does... from three shots. Right. One of which he kills somebody with said spear. Yes, which was very cool. I, I don't even know if he dies you just don't know what happened to him or what he does. All you know is he's there and somebody gets speared. 
we uh we also have uh Saint Exim, uh who is a woman from like this Valkyrie barbarian race. Uh her powers are that her ship is really fast and that she has very large breasts that are uh, often on display. Yeah, so she she's played by Sybil Danning and just the way they have the camera angled in the ship and it's it's like <laughs> like <laughs> It's a little Ooh, gratuitous. It's exploitative at this point. That being said, this is an exploitation movie. Uh, yeah, it's and, Roger Corman, so yeah. And from what I understand, I mean, this was the kind. This was kind of her role in movies. Yeah, uh, Sybil Danning's career has been nothing but B movies where she is hot, right. and that that's it. But yeah, that's, but it's it's, that, that's it's a little much. It's so blatant compared to everything else in this movie. This this movie, for the most part, I mean it. It's not like a, a little kid's movie or anything. There's a, some adult stuff in there. But for the most part, it's pr- pretty like family friendly and then bam. Except for, yeah, just a couple parts that feel like a little out of place. But it also feels very Roger Corman. <laughs> we we got to have this. It's important for the <laughs> sales. <laughs> well, so I was watching the interview with uh, the actor who played Shad. Yeah. Um. Uh. And his name is Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas. And uh, he was talking about apparently on set she had like this bodice for like her Valkyrie getup, mm-hmm. and they had to constantly monitor it because uh, sometimes things would escape. <laughs> Jeez. To let you know how tight this was. Yeah. But uh, I think that covers our mercenaries. Did I miss any? Um. We didn't talk about Nestor. Oh, Nestor. How could I forget Nestor? He was one of the cooler ones. You want to tell us about Nestor? Uh, so Nestor's the one who is a hive mind and drives around in the very cool spaceship. The They're like all painted white with an eye painted on their forehead. They they have their normal eyes, but they have a third eye, of course. Because they're enlightened. Because they're enlightened. And it's a hive mind, so there's one Nestor, but many... I think the word they used was facets. Yes, and uh, apparently because they're all a hive mind, uh, Nestor has to spread himself out and go on adventures to afford to uh, avoid being uh, bored, bored to death. Yeah, no, they literally just show up because they just want to go on an adventure because they need something stimulating. Uh, they, they didn't have to be convinced. There's a, a funny part where Nestor uh, has a, a hot dog for the first time, and one of them bites into it, and they all start chewing, which is extra funny if you consider the fact that there might be hundreds of thousands of <laughs> other guys chewing at the same moment. Nestor is enjoying a hot dog all over the universe. Exactly. So those are our uh, setups. And going back to the special effects, one uh, name that will come out to a lot of people is uh, James Cameron. He was not the only person who worked on the special effects, but of course he was one of the ones who would go on to be Super well-known, working on Terminator, Avatar, and a million other movies. Uh, I think before this, he'd already worked with Roger Corman on... I can't remember if it was just Piranha 2, or if he also worked on the original as well. But Uh, they had previous experience. The original, at least some of the original, was Rob Bottin, so it might be the second one. Okay. Or maybe he worked on the first one as well, but typically... And maybe not wasn't in charge. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to look again, but... I know that this was not his first time working with Corman. Um, and it was funny because one of the things that's interesting about the miniature work done here is how ambitious a lot of it is, uh, especially for how little money. 
they had. They had. Um, in fact, all of the special effects were done on a new studio that Corman had bought. And by new studio, I mean he bought a lumber yard <laughs> in Venice, California to make this movie. And they, like, had a shed where they did, like, the special effects scenes. And they had, like, one of the areas was converted to be a stage. It was interesting because he didn't want people to know that this was a movie studio now because he was afraid that people would want to rob it. They thought that this was like a big movie studio as opposed to just a lumber yard. But uh, carpenters would show up to buy wood from the lumber yard, and instead he would immediately hire them to work on his sets. <laughs> uh, apparently a lot of uh, carpenters were just hired on the spot there. It was interesting too because Richard was talking about how like he was really amazed at a lot of the stuff going on. I mean, a lot of the stuff that became these stages were really just found uh, material art pieces that they were making. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, some of the scenes, including the one on Cayman ship, uh, the paint was still drying and they were still putting it together as the actors were getting on. Um, <laughs> they had fans apparently going to try to dry it. Why, <laughs> why the, they were getting into their spots. That's not surprising knowing how Roger Corman and low budget filmmaking are just by the seat of their pants 24-7. Right. One thing I also learned, obviously, nowadays, uh, using, like, minis and stuff, we would consider that old school. But they actually consider a lot of the techniques that they were using uh, old school at the time because, I guess, in the 80s, we forget, but things like blue screen and stuff were becoming options. And even some, like, very limited uh, computer stuff. Um, but they were mostly just using miniatures and forced perspective shots. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, uh, it works. And some parts definitely look like you're watching a movie. But I, I thought the special effects aged pretty well. Some some of the blue screen they, they did, you can tell. But the, actually, the forced perspective stuff looks really good, I thought. Yeah, it's, the older techniques are the ones that held up the best for this movie. Yeah. Now, anything that was in any effect that was in camera... Definitely looked a lot better, I thought. I, I will say there there are some times where there is a, a cool shot of ships fighting, and it was so cool, you get to see it again and again and again. Well, and I believe, I'd have to double check on this, but I think some of this footage, not much of it, but I think some of it was used from a previous movie that Corman had done. And I definitely know that Corman would go on to use some shots from this movie for another sci-fi movie. I think, I don't remember what it's called. It's it's probably Corman, but there's a movie where it is essentially four different movies that were never, like, released, re-edited together. Was it watchable at all? No. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but uh, Roger Corman is definitely a big fan of recycling his property. Mm -hmm. He is. Uh, in fact, uh, the music for here was original, but he would use this music again, too. <laughs> wow, the music's really good. Um, I'll go ahead and just talk a bit about the music guy. James Horner is like an actual composer who has composed actual things. You mentioned James Cameron. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he did Aliens as well as Titanic, and I believe he also uh, maybe did the music for Avatar. He was at least a part of the music department. Did the music for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the Captain EO, Michael Jackson short film, 
He also did the music for the newest remake of The Magnificent Seven. See, it's all, time is a flat circle. It it all comes around. It was interesting, too, because he was very young when he did it. I think he gave his all into this trying to, like, make a career for himself because he didn't, I don't know if he'd ever done one before this. Uh, certainly not much. There was maybe four others. This was definitely, like, at the start of his career. And uh, it definitely, I think, helped launch it, and I thought the music was pretty good in this one. Yeah, I will say that there isn't much diverse, like, I'm sure he wrote more than just the main track, but it's like he went super hard on the main theme, and then they just kept using the main theme throughout the entire well, yeah. thing. if you put anything else, you will not be able to hear it over the pew-pews. <laughs> but uh, there is some other music for it, but definitely... Uh, I think they were they were trying to think, uh, well, like Star Wars has such an iconic soundtrack, so just trying to really get that earworm in there. Another person who was important to the movie was uh, John Sayles. He wrote the script, and it was kind of amazing because, you know, he was talking with Roger, and Roger's like, just write this to be as good as it can. I will figure out how to cut the money <laughs> uh, because if you look at it and really, if you look at this movie, uh, like take a step back and like you were to look through the script, it's kind of ambitious just for like the planets they showed, especially like when they were going to find Gelt, the planet where there's just these storms going constantly, um, the way Akir was set up or, uh, and especially the space battles. Typically like the worst sin low budget filmmakers can do. I think this is especially true of modern low-budget filmmakers, but going higher concept than their budget can do, it, it's so frustrating where, where you watch something like maybe Phantasm Five, where there's such a, a so many ridiculous special effects required, but they, they couldn't afford anything other than bad CGI, and it really just takes a, a major hit on the movie. But this movie, they went high concept and were just able to pull it off because they had so many talented people behind it. And as much crap as Roger Corman makes, he does understand money and how to stretch a budget. So I, I think that's to his credit. No, Richard came on the set saying, I man, I hope this makes some money. And they said, Roger, just trust Roger on this. We're going to make money. I believe I remember hearing Corman say that he's never lost any money on a movie. Which I firmly believe. He, he's he got a gift. Now, sometimes that gift is just to put out schlock, but I think this is a movie that would be worth people's time to watch. But yeah, no, it's amazed that they were able to go higher concept and still come out okay. However, I think the issue with a lot of filmmakers that do it today is they go for as high concept as they can and then they're just like, we will CGI it all. Yeah. Here, and of course they can't afford the best programs or the amount of time necessary or the best artists, and you get a meh product. Whereas when you were low-budget filmmaking at this time, uh, the really memorable stuff is, okay, we have a limited budget. How can we be creative? Where, what like techniques can we use? They pioneered a lot of things to get these looks, so... I mean, these people were working around the clock constantly on all of this stuff in their various studios. I think they had, like, three design teams going at once, filming different space battles. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I don't know, they, f they filled that void with, like, ingenuity. Whereas yeah. now they're all trying to just repeatedly drink from the same well. 
and those who didn't know any ingenuity uh, made some very silly movies. They did. <laughs> I've seen some very strange and some very bad things, but you know what? Uh, they're part of what makes uh, having a channel like this fun. John Sayles, apart from doing the screenplay for this, he also did the screenplay for The Howling, Alligator, and Piranha. Other than that, he didn't actually do a whole lot. One person who you probably didn't know was at the uh, set was Bill Paxton. Why was Bill Paxton on set? He was doing handyman stuff. He was helping to build things, and he was there, I think he was uh, recommended by James Cameron. Huh. Uh, But yeah, no, Bill Paxton was there. He's not in the movie, but he did help put it together. I'm not an expert on Paxton's career, but I would guess that if he's working as a handyman on this film, this was probably before his career took off. I think it was like just before. Everybody apparently says that he was hilarious on set and helped keep everybody's spirits up while they were, like, putting this out at a quick rate. Let's see, do, do you have anything else you'd like to mention about these special effects? I'm sure that if I were more knowledgeable about special effects, I could say even more. But for the most part, well, I do have this to say. One distinct advantage they had about having each ship be very unique from all the other ships is it does make the space battles more interesting because you can tell who is who. Yeah, it that does help. And it's less like Star Wars where, you know, you have like, here are the good guy ships, here are the bad guy ships, but it's like, no, you can pick out which individual characters are where. So I thought that was just another neat thing that just came out of these choices. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think the special effects crew did a good job. Uh, and I think you could say they did a tremendous job if you consider the budget and pressure they were under. I'll real quickly touch on uh, why I maybe didn't enjoy this movie as much as I did the first time is the story is really weak. It is is really weak. It doesn't really venture much from its premise. It's more of the first half of the movie is jump from place to place uh, recruiting these people. Uh, And then after that, it's have space battles, uh, which makes it a breezy watch, but it's not like you're going to become... It's like within the first five minutes, without even knowing anything about Shad, he's already been sent out to go find mercenaries. Right. There is no build-up to that. They immediately throw Shad into space. Yeah, there's a little bit of, like, background that they hint at, because the ship that he pilots talks and has a history and, and brings up things. The ship I also found annoying. I didn't think I found it annoying the first time, but this um, it time... It didn't bother me. Yeah, I found her annoying this time. Have you ever considered that maybe the reason you don't enjoy it this much uh, the second time around is that you're a curmudgeon who's impossible to please? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I think if the ship was annoying, or at least not so annoying that it made it so like every time I hear the ship talk, I'm dying, but annoying enough that I'm like, man, I kind of wish the ship didn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> and... As I said earlier, a lot of a lot of the mercenaries just sort of fall into his lap. There's never a real struggle to recruit. No, uh, he runs into Cowboy not that long into being into space. Nestor finds him. Uh, there's a girl he meets at a space station who decides to follow him, and she gets captured by people who are very easily talked into killing Sador. Um, so no, they do. And, I mean, part of this, I guess, is... 
the fact that we have to recruit them all within the film's runtime. Yeah. But it's not... This is very definitely a breezier watch than other incarnations of the story because, I mean, The Magnificent Seven... Minor spoilers for all of The Magnificent Seven-derived movies, or I should say Seven Samurai-derived movies except for Bug's Life, is that once the battles start happening, we start to lose our mercenaries, right? And it's, like, really, like, dark and poignant in, like, Seven Samurai, but even, like, in The Magnificent Seven, you know, you kind of feel for them as you lose them. But we don't actually get to know any of these ones uh, terribly well, so it's not super high impact, even though each character is kind of cool. Uh, most of them have maybe, like, one personality trait. They spend maybe five minutes prior to the big battle sort of having the, the characters interact on a cure. Apart from that, we we don't really get much time to get terribly attached to them. No, we maybe get the most time with Cowboy, but even then that's not a huge amount. Yeah. Like I said, you know, this isn't meant to necessarily to be a dark and poignant movie anyway. But, you know, it would have raised the stakes a little bit. I mean, if you consider what this movie is, which is a, a popcorn movie, you know, a, it's a big, it's a space battle movie. It's okay to want more from your popcorn movies. It is, but it's also okay to accept something for what it is and go along yeah. for the ride. No, and that's true. That's kind of, like, I'm not saying that your criticisms are wrong or anything. No, I mean, the plot is pretty bare bones. We move from place to place and we see a lot of cool space battles. So if you're looking for heavy character development, you're not going to find it here. I will say a bonus, though, for this movie is all of the mercenaries do stand out. It may not be a terribly deep character, but it's like you look at him and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that that's the lizard man. That's the Valkyrie. That's the, the space mercenary. That's the cowboy trucker. I think the costumes help with this. Not only does each one have a distinct ship, but each one has like a very distinct look. Uh, and that look does usually pretty well to like characterize what their deal is. Especially the buff guy with the spear, but that's partly because he looks completely out of place. Yeah, I don't even know if you count him as one of the mercenaries or if he's just on <laughs> Cayman's team. If he's just like this buff guy Cayman keeps around in case something heavy needs carried. He, wait, he looks like is he looks like Roger Corman was making multiple movies at once, and he just hey, we need another stand-in. Come, come, just be in this real quick. Well, <laughs> Roger Corman uh, did produce his share of barbarian exploitation <laughs> movies uh, because. The movies to cash in around this time, this era, I don't know if Conan had just come out yet or if I it think was about Conan to come would out in a be year or two. a couple couple years from I think there. you're right, but uh no, Conan and uh Star Wars were the movies too. Well, and uh we, we had a lot of martial arts exploitation movies too. Which speaking of martial arts, I think we should talk about Sador. Yeah. Um, he, he doesn't actually do any martial arts, but he's played by John Saxon, who's in Enter the Dragon. So right. that's where the connection is in my brain. Well, and, you know, maybe Sador could do martial arts if he didn't have to keep replacing body parts. Sador is actually, at first he looks a little silly because it's John Saxon in silver paint with either a scar or war paint. Or yeah, He's got sure something which. across his face, but... He just keeps, like, replacing his limbs with other people's limbs. Well, and they mention, I mean, I guess every, it seems like everybody on his ship is some sort of mutant. And I guess Sador has been around for a very long time. And I guess he does this 
by constantly replacing parts from aliens that he kills and uh, harvesting and replacing them. He's got like an odd ship surgeon with a light up chainsaw. Yeah, there's a actually pretty clever part where Nestor pretty much sacrifices one of his facets so that Sador will take his arm. But of course, Nestor is still in control of that arm and so tries to kill Sador with the Nestor. Yeah, with arm. the arm that he's just grafted on. That was, I thought that was a creative yeah. idea. It was also kind of funny because uh, Sador's gloves are all like five fingered and the brand new arm he gets has three like big beefy fingers. Yeah, he turns to one of like his subordinates and is like, but we're going to have to do something about this. Yeah. And Sador, uh, John Saxon, I think, does a fine job of being the villain. If there was anybody, though, who could have really stood maybe just a little more screen time and a little more, like, uh, investigation, maybe it would be Sador. Yeah. Because and... uh, right now, he's just, he's, he's very much your generic space villain. Yeah, he's going to enslave your planet or shoot it with a laser that turns it into a sun, which... Is very Death Star-esque, but I do appreciate that it turns it into a sun and doesn't just explode your planet. I th- well, and I mean, in this case, too, the weakness in it makes a lot of sense. His shields are very tough, but once he's cleared out the opposition, he can't use the Stellar Converter until the shields are down, which makes sense. Yeah, or at least the shields where the Stellar Converter is. And, spoiler, Sybil Danning, the Valkyrie... Does a kamikaze. She shoots half of her ship into it and it explodes where the stellar converter is and then she blows up her own ship and takes out a lot of the other guys but it's cool but at the same time when she shoots half of her ship into satyr's ship she lets out a screech that is less of a cool war cry and more of a whoa uh first take on that i see we didn't we didn't think maybe that was not the cool war cry to go with well and what's even funnier to me is then later we see cayman feels the need to let out a uh, war cry of short and (laughs) i I don't know if uh (laughs) i don't know if that came off the way they were hoping doesn't he also try to kamikaze his ship or Um, is he just trying to he thinks he's going to ram it and it's going to work out but Sador's shields were more powerful, and it did not. You know, you know there's kind of a lot of kamikaze in this movie, if I think about it. Shad takes his ship, and he and Nanelia, who's the girl he met on the satellite thing, they set the ship to explode as it's being sucked up by uh, Sador's tractor beam, I guess. And they are able to take an escape pod out, but they blow up the ship to kill Sador, which of course kills uh, the annoying voice on the ship as well. That scene was a little less uh, tragic for me than it might have been for others. <laughs> I mean, I'm not especially attached to this ship with the voice, but I, I don't uh, remember having this sort of animosity. I guess I tell you what, if you did watch this movie before, or if you go into watch this movie in the comments, you know, uh, I don't know, what'd you think? Did that bother you? <laughs> is is uh, Bones just crazy, or does just nothing bother me? I just, I don't, I don't know. I couldn't tell you precisely what my criticism of the ship's voice is. <laughs> I just know just I didn't like, like it. it. 
simple as okay <laughs> okay well you know what fair enough i'll give it to you uh that that didn't do it for you well we, we've sort of off and on talked about casts yeah do you want to just run in and go through yeah uh, before we even get to cast I'll, I'll mention the director real quick the director was jimmy murakami and he did not direct a lot in fact he mostly directed animated stuff right i don't think did he ever direct another feature like this after this because i don't think he directed any movies or at least any movies that you know were animation yeah before this i don't uh, think he did any after either i don't think he did anything like this again but he did when the wind blows which has music by david bowie he did the snowman which it's an animated sort of christmas film which also has david bowie <laughs> he did a a uh, single segment in the movie Heavy Metal and the Tootsie Pop ad, the like with the owl. Oh. How many licks? He did that. Iconic. And that was that was about it. When the Wind Blows and The Snowman are both pretty well remembered or at least critically liked. So I thought it was strange. I, I don't know, his all of the things are strange with this. Yeah, this is a this is a weird movie. Well, and when we get to the rest of the cast, it gets stranger because we have such a mix of people. Now, though Murakami did direct this, I think a lot, especially early on, Corman assisted him pretty heavily, at least at the beginning, mm-hmm. until he kind of got used to it. Because, like I said, this is the only time he directed, I think, something that wasn't animated. I don't think he went on to do any more. Yeah. That makes you kind of surprised the direction seems smooth as it is, because... <laughs> You would think, being a complete novice, that it would be hard. Mm-hmm. Shad, our main character, is Richard Thomas. He is in The Waltons. That's probably what he's most famous for. And he is also in the made-for-TV original movie, It. And I always forget that he's in that. Yeah, those are the two things I know him from. He's very recognizable because he's got sort of a... I don't know if it's a mole or a birthmark or something. He's got something on his cheek. So he, he sort of stands out. I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff, but if you look, you'd be a lot of it's made for TV movies that he was in. And then he was in with some smaller projects and stuff, and I think he still does stuff when he can. But uh, no, it was interesting here, though, because he was most famous from the Waltons. Now, despite being like a TV show, it was a very well-regarded, highly acclaimed one in he had a very iconic role on it throughout all of the seasons. So people would have instantly watched this in noon. That was John boy. This is I'm sure nobody's seen it, but looking through his filmography, I did get a, a little chuckle out of seeing that there was a Hank Williams jr. Movie where he plays Hank Williams jr. And John it, boy does. Yes. And there's like, that's so bad casting. I, I it, <laughs> he's the last person I would pick to play Hank Williams Jr. I guess I'd have to watch the movie to tell you how bad, the, if the casting is even bad or Watch not. it be like the best movie ever. It could be the definitive Hank Williams Jr. movie. But no, I, if I was casting, that would not have been my first choice. No, it would have not. And I think he does a good job in this. Like I said, he doesn't, there's not a lot of character moments for things to sit and go. Uh, one thing that was interesting though, is he was talking about one of the things he constantly practiced was trying to like, all of them had to figure out how they piloted their ships. So he was constantly like trying to make motions because he's trying to, you know, 
generally in acting, you try to take things back to prior experiences or like look at how somebody in real life would do something and try to mimic it. But he's flying a starship, which nobody's done yet. So he <laughs> he was talking about how it was kind of difficult trying to make it look right and feel right. He he didn't go with the you know driving a car one hand on the top of the steering wheel you know cruising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would have had the same effect uh, Pro- or sense of urgency here. Yeah, it maybe would have taken away from some of the space battles. Now, if you want to talk though about a proper cult movie actor, uh, John Saxon. Yeah, John Saxon. We like John Saxon here on Cult is King, don't we, Bones? Yeah, he is. An actor who is in good things and he is in bad things, but he is always good in whatever he is in, even if it is only for five minutes. Right. Granted, he was in here for more than five minutes, but just to give you an idea, and this is by no means the complete John Saxon uh, filmography, he's one of those actors I've come to understand that why I may not expect him to be there, if I'm watching anything from the 70s or 80s, I would never bet any amount of money that he wouldn't show up because you never know. He's everywhere, um, especially movies I like to watch. But uh, we already mentioned he was in Enter the Dragon where he had a pretty significant part as Roper, um, but he was also in uh, a Dario Argento movie, uh, Tenebrae. He was in Nightmare on Elm Street, and the third one is Nancy's Father. And in A New Nightmare. And in A New Nightmare. And he was in the MST3K favorite, Mitchell. Yeah, that's the one where he's only in it for five. He's quickly written out of the story. (laughs) But uh, he was in Mitchell. (laughs) It's funny because that movie's probably more well-known because of Mystery Science Theater than for any notoriety it had necessarily on its own. But every time I go back to watch it, because I always remember it's a funny episode, but every time, I've watched it like three times now, every time, I'm always surprised to see John Saxon in it. You think I'd learn at this point, but like I said, I could go on, but those I thought was a good smattering. He could have definitely probably had a little more screen time in this, but he's not absent. He's not He's not underutilized, you know, and uh, he does a good job of being evil and from space. Yeah, I mean, it's not a terribly deep villain but it's still fun another uh one of course that we've already mentioned is gelt uh he's played by robert vaughn we already mentioned probably one of his most significant roles just period is magnificent seven but he was also in bullet demon seed is another kind of cult movie he was in but probably most famously after magnificent seven uh, he played the lead role in man from uncle which was a tv series that was very popular at the time yeah, there's a, a period in his career called the 80s where <laughs> <laughs> a little something called the 80s. His uh his I I don't want to know what happened because it's always depressing. It's like, ah, oh, this guy was dealing with alcoholism or like a divorce or something, so we had to keep acting and all this crap to to make money. But I'm going to pretend that he just liked to act uh and chose to act in Chud to Bud the Chud. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he was in, um, oh, I think he was in Zombie 5. Let, let me check my notes here. Yes, he was in Zombie 5. Well, you know, many people say that's the best zombie. And by many people, I mean, I've never heard that there was a Zombie 5. Yeah, I was about to say there's. you didn't know <laughs> there was a Zombie 5. I didn't know there was a Zombie 3. I thought it was just 2. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we'll have to go through the zombie movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's just, you know, it's not, this is fine, you know. Uh, 
we'll get through all the movies eventually. But uh, yeah, no, his his career in the the movies in the eighties with him are, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're like that. That being said, I don't know what his attitude on the other ones were or how he felt about doing this movie. But according to Richard, uh, he seemed personable and still very professional about his job on this craft. The next person I have on my list is George Peppard, um, who played Space Cowboy. And he was he wasn't in a lot that I know. He was in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, which was probably his most acclaimed role. But and, yeah. He was he was in a movie called Blue Max and uh the Ground Star Conspiracy, which I've seen neither. Well, you have seen him, though. Uh, you missed his most notable role. This is uh, Hannibal from A-Team. Oh, I'm so stupid. I, I don't know why I completely <laughs> you know missed what, that. You know what, though? Sometimes you see somebody so much that you uh, just you miss them. Yeah. But no, uh, this is Hannibal from the A-Team, which is probably his most notable role, seeing as the A-Team is huge. And I, I, I still watch it. I love the A-Team. Yeah. So it's kind of a shame, though. They never say see a space cowboy. Nope. Not well, once. Weebs hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> they called the planet a cure, okay? <laughs> There's at least one weeb. On. <laughs> but, yeah, that's. I think that's all we can really say for, for him. And then is, I believe her name was St. Exmin? Um, I have it written Exim. Exim? Um, I literally just thought her name was Valkyrie because she... She's essentially a Valkyrie, but Sybil Danning, the movie I know her best from is Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf. Classic. Um, <laughs> which is, I'm, I, it's absolute trash. Um, it is so it's bad. It's completely bonkers, and I hope to make uh, Bones watch it sometime soon. She's also in a, a movie called The Panther Squad, which I'm aware of. She was in a single episode of V. And also the tomb, but if you just look through her filmography, it's it's nothing but B movies, typically involving women with guns. She's not like a scream queen. No, uh, and the other two I had listed for her was she was in Hercules with Lou Ferrigno, <laughs> and um, I've never watched it, but I am intrigued. Uh, Amazon Women on the Moon. That is a. It's like a, a comedy movie with like a bunch good? of sketches. I'm, I'm pretty sure the general consensus is that it is not good. But <laughs> good. We'll make, oh, that'll be my next. I've pick. seen at least one bit from it that was funny to me. So maybe maybe it is funny in a dumb sort of way. Did you know she plays her part well in this? Yeah. What what, what there is, you know, I, for the record, to, to the credit, you know, uh, I thought that she gave a lot of life and a lot of made her role very fun. She's not bad in the movie. It's just you kind of look at the filmmaking and you're like, huh, yeah. It's very apparent why Sybil was chosen. Yeah. For better or worse. I mean, that is kind of the role she fills in a lot of these movies. I mean, a lot of the B movies she was in was kind of sleazier effort. Yeah. But for the record, she I thought she was likable in this. I don't want to take away, you know. No, she's she's not bad in this. The funniest casting to me was the casting of Cayman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's played by Morgan Woodward. He appeared in a lot of westerns um he was not a regular on gunsmoke but he made more guest appearances than anybody else appearing in 19 episodes he was also in cool hand luke and a movie very dear to our channel a uh, super van yeah the uh the bad guy in super van 
you literally wouldn't know it was him if you watch this movie. He's he's well a li- hidden. he's a lizard man, right? Uh, no, he's well hidden under makeup. I would have never picked it out. And I mean, he's doing a voice which is suitable for Cayman. But uh, yeah, if you hadn't told me this, I would never have figured it out. So the last person I wrote down was Nanelia. She is kind of Shad's love interest. We didn't mention her because she wasn't one of the mercenaries in Super Depth, but basically she's been like kept in space all her life uh, on the space station by her uh, father. So she goes out to go on adventures. She didn't seem to appear in tons of stuff. She was in the third Dark Man. <laughs> uh, she was classic in Pet Cemetery too. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think this movie did well enough. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Oh yeah, no, that's right. And I didn't think she was bad or anything, but uh, a lot of the movies that uh, I recognized or that I saw that she went in tend to be uh sequels to movie franchises. Chud too, but the Chud type. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last person I wrote down was. Nestor 1, because there are multiple actors playing Nestor, but Nestor 1 is uh, Earl Bowen, who has 286 credits, but most of those are voice acting. He's done a lot of voices in video games. Do you have any uh, examples he off was, the top he did, of your head? He, was, he did the like various voices in one of the Call of Duty games, so okay. what I didn't even recognize him from, but he is Dr. Silberman. In Terminators 1 through 3, if I remember correctly, he's like the police psychologist. Right. I I mean, A, you you can't even recognize him because they're all sort of wearing this. I don't think it's supposed to be a bald cap or maybe it is supposed to be a bald cap. They're all wearing like this white garment on their head. Yeah, to make it look like they have, I guess, big heads. I I don't know Uh, what it's supposed to be, but... You can't tell who it is. And his face is covered in white paint. And then, you know, we talked about Roger Corman a bit. He he was the B-movie king. King of... Directing, producing. I think he's still active. Yeah, he still produces. I think nothing past the 2000s or nothing past the 90s is probably worth watching, if we're going to be honest. He's been active for forever. I want to say, like, one of the first ones was, like, Attack of, like, the Giant Leeches... He was doing stuff even prior before, like yeah. uh, reading a bit about him. He started out as a, a messenger for 20th Century Fox. And this was back in the day when you could be a messenger and then rise to the rank of script supervisor and then go and do more. And I think he wrote a, a screenplay that got turned into a, a movie and he didn't really like how it turned out. So he started making his own stuff. And I'm sort of curious if he started out with the intention of being, of like making, making like good movies and it just Mm -hmm. turned into, well, but this is how you make money and that's more important. Or from the start it was, where did the producer mindset set in is my question. The thing, the strangest thing about Roger Corman is if all his movies were bad, that would make sense. But we see that. He has talent when he wants to apply it, and I guess under the right conditions, um, because like the Edgar Allan Poe, Vincent Price movies were pretty good. Yeah, and he produced and directed a lot of those. And those are considered classics in their genre, or just kind of in general. And of course, it helped they had Vincent Price to work with. 
But yeah, those were well done. And um, Piranha is low budget, but it's still also pretty fondly remembered. But it's like a real movie. Yeah. And then he made this, which, you know, I think is pretty decent, but it does not look like a movie made by somebody who tries to make it tries to see if he can stretch $50 to cover the whole film. You know what I mean? So but then he does have films that do very much appear to be hot garbage. So like I said, I, I hate to say he's not talented. He obviously, he also probably has some great business savvy. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he's just a very strange creature in the mythos of movies. And he's definitely, I, I don't see him as bad as uh, a lot of these B-movie producers because I feel like he is at least connected to the crap he makes, even if it is just uh, even if it is just garbage. No, and I think Roger was hands-on in a lot of his movies. So, mm-hmm. like I said, he's made some must-watches, he's made some cult classics, and he's made some, I mean, even by cult standards, this is, what is this? Why does this exist? Why did you do this to us, Roger? And since we went into everyone else's acting credits, let's talk about Roger Corman's uh, brief acting credits. He is in Silence of the Lambs, Scream 3... And he is a senator in Godfather Part Two. <laughs> he just shows up in random places, probably because I'm gonna guess people just know him. Well, and I mean, I think a lot of people got their start in his movies. I mean, Lord Jack Nicholson was in the original uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Uh, before anybody would have ever like dreamed of knowing like who this guy is. With the sheer, just the sheer volume of movies he either directed or produced, there's no way he didn't, like, rub all kinds of elbows in Hollywood. I believe the number is 493 movies produced. Which is insane. Mind you, he might not be, it might be a producer, executive producer, some other producer-related job, but that it's a lot of movies to work on. So, I think I'm kind of going into my final thoughts here. Um, unless you have another topic I, that you think I, is... Yeah, I think we've covered a lot. Yeah. So, this is a movie where if you're looking to see a good standalone sci-fi movie, I think this is a good one. As Bones has pointed out, the story here is not super deep, but if you're ready to just kind of be taken through space on a wild ride, I think you'd enjoy this one. If you want to see Magnificent Seven in space with Star Wars elements... This is for you. Yeah. Would recommend. Well, Bones, what do we want to watch next week? All right. So I'm going to have you pick a number between one and three because I have three that I would really like to talk about, but I, I, I can't be bothered to pick. Well, I'm going to go with three because it's a magic number. So what is it? Okay. We are going to talk about... Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure, a, a, a drastically different movie than what we have been uh, talking about for the, the last uh, however long we've been talking. Well, it's going to be another episode of Bad Pronunciations, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Bones. I'm not sure I'm not uh, I'm equipped to rate any movies that don't have rubber monsters in them, but I'll do my best. Yeah, this is... Uh... I think we'll mostly be... A little ambitious be, here. Yeah. I, it'll be the first episode where the entire episode is us trying to figure out what even was the plot. 
that's why you need this channel, you know, because there's going to be people who have like all these video essays about the deep meaning. But this is like we're real dudes watching this and we're going to be honest with you if we have no clue. <laughs> yeah, guys, we spent the last two hours. We don't know what we watched either. And, Tell us in the comments. And if you are a film expert, uh, you know, here's a Rube's view. See, yeah, for there, perspective. There you go. But uh, yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, uh, Castbox, and YouTube, of course. And uh, feel free to subscribe, leave a comment, and smash the like button. <laughs> smash it! It's not even fun to say anymore. Use your stellar converter and fire up <laughs> on the like button. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And uh, keep it cold. <laughs> <laughs>